Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation podcast series at NYU Langone Health. These interviews make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I am honored to have as today's guest, Dr. Matthew Bartels, who is chairman of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Montefiore Medical Center, Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Podcast listeners have an opportunity to hear many interviews with exceptionally knowledgeable and interesting participants. Each segment is in the 15 to 20 minute range, apart from the introduction of speakers. Occasionally, however, a pair of longer recordings is featured by individuals who participated in Grand Rounds presentations at the Rusk Institute of Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Health. This podcast by Dr. Bartels is on the topic of international rehabilitation activities in Jamaica, El Salvador, Iraq, and China. His presentation occurred at a Grand Round session at Rusk on November 20th, 2019. In part two of his Grand Rounds presentation on November 20th, 2019, Dr. Bartels talks about using 3D printing for prostheses in Jamaica, where there is not a lot of money to spend on assistive devices. So then going back to Jamaica, so we sell this 3D printing something we might be able to do because they don't have a lot of resources. They can't spend a lot of money. And one of the other things too is, in Jamaica, if you buy a piece of DME from the United States and you ship it down here, how much do you think it costs? Let's say it's a $20 item. It costs you twice as much, plus sugar. Why? Because in Jamaica, everything is at 100% value. It's unimportant. Just think about what that does to the economy of the country. But that's aside from that. You know, if you wanted to start a business and you needed $100,000 of stock, it's $200,000. And you have a cash flow population, so how are you going to buy yourself? And it's But for healthcare, it's also a tremendous problem. It's a $500 wheelchair, it's going to cost $1,000. And they don't have the money in the first place. So 3D printing, we thought, was a great way to go. Because yes, you're going to still have to buy the film in a $20 roll and it's going to cost 40 but you can get a lot of things out of that. So that's where we started thinking, so if we've been doing 3D printing, let's, let's apply it to the maker. So we actually had uh, the MakerBot company donated us a printer. It was last generation printer. It was sitting in a warehouse. They couldn't sell it anymore. They got a tax write-off. Not a bad thing for them, right? So this is the team. So we had a high school student here who helped us by setting it up and setting up some templates and creating a, a software library that we put on a thumbnail. Because also internet access is not reliable. So you have to think of that as well. And then in the back is Dr. St. John. She is, or was at that point, a resident. And she's now one of the attending faculty at Sir John Goldman Hospital. Phenomenally well-trained physician. Very smart. 
really excited to get this, and then we have one of our fellows by the side. So that was us delivering the printer. That is the only air-conditioned room in the Golding Center. <laughs> so it was the chairman's office, his office. So Dr. Dixon had a printer in his office. So this was our first print. That's why we're saying number one. Um, and that print down there on that template was for <coughs> What we looked at was Thermoplast costs over $100 a sheet, $125, $150 a sheet. Okay, that's $300 a sheet down in Jamaica. So, making upper extremity splints is going to be a little pricey for what they can afford down there. However, when we took it, we said, well, what you normally would cut out of the thermoplast, we can scan that and make that. And then you do the same thing with the PLA plastic. You can put it into a, um, into a pan of warm water. You can soften it, and then you can apply it. The only challenge is the PLA doesn't stay soft as long as the thermoplast, so you have to move really quickly. But the other benefit of the PLA over the thermoplast is it has memory, so that once you actually form it, it's really hard to bend it from that position. So just putting it in hot water and putting it back on again, it's bringing it back to the position that you first molded it. You can, though, if you don't make the mold right on first shot, you can use a heat pump, you know, basically to, to heat it up and then actually mold it. So that, those are things that they have. They've got heat pumps, they've got frying pans, you know, the electric frying pans that sit in water. That they got. But we actually brought one down and donated it just in case. So that would be the splint that we would use for patients. So that is what that splint then looks like when you actually put it together. They have Velcro, they have other kinds of resources. So it's not like there's no resources there. But to make the splint, the thermoplast is just too, too expensive. Now we've trained the therapist to use this. This was a year ago that we delivered this. I just sat down with Dr. Dixon and said, so how's it going? So eh, we're making like five or six splints a month. The problem is that the staff feel anxious. So we're gonna go back down and the next thing we're gonna do is we're gonna reinforce this and the last time I was there, I did, because we had a prosthetic problem, and I called up our prosthetist in New York, and I was able to Skype with him. So they got the intro that a little bit better. So we actually Skyped, so we're like, did the video. See, that's what the, this looks like. What are we gonna do over here? And he's like, well, I got maybe, and you know, oh, that looks like we could do this. And we actually managed to get some equipment and put things together. We cobbled together a solution, and then we shipped down uh, another foot for him a couple, a couple weeks later. So, you know, that kind of consultation also works. But this is an example. This is one of these tetraplegic patients who did not have a resting hand splint until we were able to fabricate that. The cost of this in material is about $2. They can afford that. That's what they can afford. So this, for example, is how high-tech we did it. We had one of our OTs with us, and we said, well, if you were going to make this out of aquaplast, what's the shape? Well, she said, that's the shape. And so we cut it out of the paper towel. Then we took a camera, camera scanner out of your phone and we scanned the shape into the 3D software. We manipulated it to make three sizes, small, medium, and large, of that shape. Then we printed this, and it takes about 40 minutes to print on the printer, and then we applied it to a patient. And if you notice, this is a typical Jamaican hospital. What do you see in the background? It's open to the trees. So what does that mean? flies and stuff can come in, because these are open. So every time there's a tropical storm or a hurricane, I'm going, these patients are not in a, I mean, the, the building's made out of cinder block and 
concrete. The building will last, but the wind will be blowing through. Now, on a normal day, that's a very welcome thing because it's really hot there and you don't have air conditioning. You want the breeze to blow through. When you have a storm, it's more of a challenge. So, I haven't been there, fortunately, during one of those storms, but that can be a real challenge for them. But another first item, maybe the first first item we made for delivery for a patient was a tracheostomy cap. We got there and there were three C5 tetraplegians who were now four months after their injury who were still trained. Why? When they originally were injured, they got their trait and had you know, some problems, but now they were theoretically breathing independently, of course, because they were on a band. But somewhere in the original hospitalization, that original cat, they think it was childhood and lost. And they can't afford to buy these. Because, you know, these cats are about 15 bucks, make that 30 bucks plus shipping, it's probably 60 or 70 dollars. They don't have How do they get these cats? So we looked at this and I'm like, the first patient I rounded on, I was like, this guy is ready to be cannulated, but I want to talk to him first. So what did I do? I said, let's go to Thingiverse. And we found a 12 millimeter cap model. So it was 35 minutes to print. An hour later, I walked back and they said, we're going to do this with you. And here we do it with him. Let me just see if I can play this. So this is a guy who's been like this for five months. Let me see if I can get. So there's a little bit of fear on his face because he hasn't had this thing blocked for a long time. But I was absolutely sure. There was no reason that he was not going to be able to do this. There we go. Now, time's off. See how great you're Yeah. Beautiful. Awesome. Can you sing? So we saw him on Monday. We had him cat twenty four hours on Friday. We went to see his pulmonologist on Monday and his But that was something that we were able to do because we had this. It turns out, talking to Dr. Dixon, the biggest item that they have printed has been cats. They're printing many of these because they have many of the patients who don't have them. I probably broke every patent rule in the world <laughs> by printing a shyly with a lot of but soon. Um, you know, if you only sue for financial benefits, we didn't get any benefit out of this. So. Whatever. Now, they have a prosthetic shop, and this is actually the technician. If you notice, looking at his hands, he has severe syndactyl. So he is exceedingly functional. And I just said that, you know, I went um, and talked, I did a, a video conference with our prosthetist. Uh, this is the foot, and this is the prosthetic that we that we did the video consultation on. So this, this just happened this summer. So we were able to get the guy who came in. He was a young man, he had grown, and his prosthetic was four inches too short. And he had also worn out the foot. And there were other things. So we went through and figured out all the things we were doing. We talked with our prosthetist there who was able to actually adopt the things that we needed to do. Now this gentleman over here had a stroke, and that's our speech therapist. Now that's the place of speech therapy. <laughs> 
And literally, on the right, there was a mango tree with mangoes you could just pick off. They were ripe and delicious. So that's the place that the speech therapy. So he was out, he was getting intensive speech therapy over the years with our therapists. Now that's something that we can't train up because they just don't have therapists. So that's a real problem down there. Uh, this is the staff of Golden with some of our team. And then we also went to one of the local schools and we did a healthcare fair for the local students there. So most of the students were year ones, it's kind of fun. So then, the 3D. Now, this is an individual who was injured in a machete fight. Uh, it was his brother-in-law who attacked him with a machete. So he lost his hand with basically a disarticulation of the wrist. He had a very long prosthetic limb. So what we did is we used traditional technology in order to make a cast. As I said, they have a prosthetic lab. They can do this. Plaster is cheap. It's making the prosthetic. It's so expensive because the components are so expensive. So we said, okay, we're going to make them a 3D limb. So earlier there was a picture of us working on the bed. This is the limb when it's finally assembled. Now, as you notice, the color wasn't correct. But in their prosthetic lab, they got the right colors. So we were able to color match it. The first time we showed it to him, he was like, I'm not going to wear that. It's like, no, no, no. That's just the color that the plastic prints in. But we taught him, because it's a very simple prosthetic, to use it as we were assembling it. So he had intact flexor and extensor bundles, so we basically just have it be simply extending and flexing based on using the existing bundles. So it's a myoelectric sensor that's placed over the extensor and flexor bundle to allow flexion and extension. Now, the day before we had explained to him, go home, practice tensing this muscle and tensing this muscle, tensing this muscle, tensing this muscle. So you can see he had very good control of this within a very short time. This prosthetic, the most expensive components are the chips, and actually it's the myoelectric sensors. They're about $30 a piece. So for this, we can make this about 200 bucks. Whoops, took the wrong way. I want to go forward. And then we also demoed this a year ago at the PMNR workshop, and we did it again this year with an updated version. So we have a new updated version that, yeah, we could turn the volume down a little bit. We have a new updated version that actually, uh, the components are smaller. It only uses one uh, motor. It doesn't use two motors. It's all to decrease the cost and make, make it cheaper and easier to, to do. And this was, we just had one of the people who was uh, at, the, at, the at the academy meeting just, that's how fast you can learn how to use this. That was our Jamaica mission team at 18. All right, now, switching gears. We'll talk a little bit about consultations and so forth. So in China, uh, they have a very big problem. It's not something we talk about a lot. Everybody talks about how competitive they are and how they're going to take over the United States and all this. There is a very large problem that China recognizes in their government. They have a serious problem with cardiovascular we don't associate this, but hypertension, stroke, and heart attack are major health issues. Plus, they have an aging population. The population of China is rapidly aging, and within a few years, there's going to be over 300 million people over the age of 65 in one country. That's more than the pop or it's about the same as the United States, over 65. If you look, 
at the leading cause of death, what you can see is the standardized rates of cardiovascular disease have done what in the last couple of years? Going up. Now, China has spent billions upon billions of dollars building the ability to do bypass surgeries, angioplasties, percutaneous interventions. When you go to Angen Hospital, which is one of the hospitals that you can be outside of it, in Angen Hospital, they do 33,000 revascularizations a year. The numbers start getting really big when they get They do 17,000 bypass surgeries a year. Their surgeons can do up to five to six cases a day, and they can run 10 simultaneous operations. You go into their cath lab control suite, it's about this big, and they have cat labs all around, and you're just looking at 10 cats simultaneously. I mean, they just ram them through. Their complication rates, minimal. They do an excellent job. Their death rates, rising. Why? There's no secondary prevention. So you go back out, and you're smoking, and eating the bad stuff, and living your bad lifestyle, and five years later, you come back in with another problem. And the surgeons there, just like the surgeons here, don't like to do re-ops. People have already been there. It's a lot harder than doing the initial case. So China's actually recognized that they have a serious issue that they need to deal with with the cardiovascular disease. And this is the other big problem that they have. Demographics. What was China's policy up until recently? One child. One child family. So what does that do to your population if you do that long term? You get this. Lots of people in middle age very little young people. That's fine right now in China. China's at its peak productivity. They have a, a population bulge between the age of 35 and 55. People at their prime working. 20 years from now, they're going to have a population bulge from 55 to 75. People aren't going to be working anymore. China mandatory retirement age is 55. So they're going to have a problem if they're going to have essentially a couple of retirees for every single working person. And think about being a middle-aged person in China. You're 45, you've got your one child, and because you're a only child, you and your spouse have four elderly parents to take care of, a child or two, the general government wants you to have more, and you guys have to be responsible for it. And they don't have nursing homes. They don't have home health aids. They don't have home care. So it's traditional that you take care of your family, which is very good, but now all of a sudden, you're trying to keep your job, take care of your child, it's very expensive to send kids to school there, you want the kid to be in the best school possible, blah, 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 and you've got your parents to take care of. So they have a real problem, and they're very, very concerned. So rehabilitation is a very big priority now, and of course, you know, they have five-year plans for everything, so that's what we're doing. So the mortality is about 250, that's actually the 265 or so, 100,000 cardiac mortality right now. In the United States, it's 125. So it's twice our mortality. We've got a much more obese and much a more unhealthy population, but China is catching up fast. I have one picture, and I didn't put it in here, where I did one of these panoramas, and in that panoramic view, I had six US-based junk food companies. Pizza Hut, Burger King, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, and it was just and you go there, and if I give this lecture, they're all having Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts. It's like, guys, there's things to adopt from America. The food ain't it. <laughs> so 
Now, so they have these big things, like they've talked about Amgen. I mean, look at the numbers that they do. Two to 3,000 valvuloplasties a year. They don't want our surgeons to come there to teach them how to do surgery. They're doing that just fine. They want us to teach them how to do the secondary prevention. And as I was mentioning earlier, I'm happy to do that because I'm not worried about intellectual property being stolen. The principles of this have been in textbooks for the last 20 years. But they want somebody to help them logistically. And the culturally, they really want to have an expert to help lead the teams because my first trips there five, six years ago, I was fighting, fighting with the surgeons and the cardiologists and doing early mobilization or getting patients up after a PCI or a cavity was dangerous. They're going to kill the patient. We finally broke it through that. Now they're like, how do we do this? Because now we've figured out this is really important and it's going to help us. So, you know, there's been a lot of cultural shift because traditionally, you were sick, you rested. And now, you're sick, we're mobilizing. So we're finally getting there. Now we have to get the patients to believe in it. But the patients actually have been pretty good about that. So the big thing is to establish a secondary prevention. The current model is China Heart Association is establishing 4,000 acute car, uh, coronary heart centers. That means that nobody will be further than half an hour away from having a PCI in, in the whole country. 4,000, think about that like establishing 4,000 hospitals. They want to have one cardiac rehab for every one of those. They figured out they need 17,000 cardiac rehab doctors and 120,000 therapists. Yeah, as I said to the first time I was looking at this, I said, I feel like the chihuahua with the elephant. I know where you go, but I have no idea how to get through there because that's the door I go through and you don't even, you can't even see the door because it's so small. We don't train enough doctors or therapists in the United States. If even we gave them our entire output, they wouldn't be able to staff this in under 10 or 15 years. So they will do it. They will figure it out. It's going to be down and dirty. Um, I already see how it will be. The initial training will be just rudimentary, get it done, have basics, and then they will gain the expertise and refine it as they go. But there is a commitment, and they really want to do this. So that's why they're actually approaching us. So I've introduced them also to the concept of using the AECVPR training model, American Association of Cardiovascular and Pulmonary Rehab. Uh, they have certifications, so it covers all the basics. The basic physiology, the basic exercise, that's the same, so it doesn't really matter. But for example, this is uh, one of the chief clinics. This is one of the, the model clinics that's established in Beijing. You can see we've got our logos up with all of the other Chinese logos. And you can see there's post-operative sports, nutritional support, psychological support, life counseling, community family health. That's all being done um, in a collaborative fashion. And then anytime you sign an agreement, there's an exchange of gifts. So the president of our hospital has that beautiful horse sitting in his, in his office. He's not letting it go. I gave it to him and he didn't want to give it back. Uh, I actually have a, a little bowl like that in my office. So he took the horse, I got the bowl. Uh, this is signing the agreements. Uh, anytime you do have an agreement, afterwards there's a very large banquet and a lot of drinking goes on. So I don't want to know what my blood alcohol content was at the time of that photo. Um, this was one of our courses. So these are doctors. These are 50 or so doctors from about 40 different hospitals uh, across China. We've done multiple ones of this. This is the one that I just did in August, this last one. And you can see I'm in the middle, but we have now trained um, this doctor over here, Jay, is somebody who trained in PM&R at Johns Hopkins, but is now back in China. And he's working there, so picking up the Howard Russ model. 
uh, very smart guy and very capable. We have several other doctors here that are also cardiac rehab doctors from China. So we're getting the expertise to do the training. But it's like, you know, you've ever seen that, I can't remember what the company is, but there's that commercial where like, I tell two people, and then they tell two people, and they tell two people. So that's the way it's going to have to happen there, because there's no way that any individual or group can do this. And the company I'm working with, LIH, they said, we're not stupid enough to try to think that we can control rehab and all of that. We want to set up model programs with model training and model quality and so forth so that we provide excellent care. Then we want to basically franchise it and we'll let the Chinese people do what they do best. And these are folks from China who said they'll just copy the duplication. They'll do it really well and they will improve it as they go through the duplication. So what we're doing is setting up like in the chief clinic a model program and then other people will come, see it, franchise it, and do it in their own locations. And that's how it's going to actually actually expand because there is no no way to do this all on your own. Let's get another problem. No! No! <laughs> That's the problem not having a clicker. There we go. So then there's other lectures too. Kunming is, if you ever go to China, go to Kunming. It's in the southwest corner of China. It's about a two hour drive from Burma, Laos, Vietnam. It is at 6,600 feet altitude and it's in the tropics. What does that mean? It's got San Diego weather with lush vegetation, and in the distance, you can see the Himalayas. Absolutely gorgeous place. So in Kunming, we've been running courses as well down there. So this is, this is the Kunming is actually the capital of uh, Yunnan province. That is Anjan Hospital in the background. The hospital, it has the 1,500 um, beds that are dedicated to cardiac uh, surgery. Uh, it's kind of fun to see your name in then your face above an entire Chinese poster. But these are other these are other lectures that we've given. Now we also round. This is the president of the Chinese Heart Association, and we were rounding with him in his hospital. So it's actually very interesting to go there and see some of the advances and some of the challenges they have. Their rehab settings. I've walked into rehab settings in China where the basics aren't there. They don't have motorized high-low mattress over, but they have four exoskeletal motorized walkers. Okay, guys, that's cool, but you guys are the basics first. And so we have lots of discussions about that. But you know, technology is very attractive to anybody. And so high technology, to be able to provide that is often unbelievably attractive. But we have to keep on working on focusing on the basics as well. And so that's a lot of the things that we do. So I think we've got a full minutes of questions. Right? Just, is one? Okay, so. so anyway, so conclusions. Basically, there's a lot that you can do internationally. It's been a lot of fun. I would encourage residents to get involved. Uh, you can feed up on your program to make sure that they send you guys to different places. Uh, we have some funding uh, that has allowed us to actually pay for the residents to go. I didn't also mention, I sh I, I'm ashamed to say that I should have, um, the Einstein students have also been parts of these missions because the Einstein Medical School has a global health program and they've actually sponsored the students to go with us as well. Uh, we are in the process of trying to establish with Dr. Dixon that we can do an elective that residents can go spend a month in Jamaica because he wants to send his folks, although they can't get full rehab training, to send a month with us so that we can start doing that. So we'll do the exchange of uh, students. We're just 
working through the whole thing because, of course, the Medical School of the Caribbean is not part of the AAMC, and so we have got a couple of things. And we also may be able to do something for our medical students because they have a full teaching college and teaching school there. So it might be that medical students can go and do more than just rehab and go do some infectious disease and do some orthopedics and do some of the other stuff. So that's actually a really great opportunity, and it's not that hard. But, and I, at the talk at the academy, the thing that we talked about is that education is great in all of this, but the only way you can be effective in a foreign country is if you have local partners. So why Jamaica? Because Bishop Brown walked into our office, and he already had connections. He's actually an ambassador at large. So I have seen him when we get into trouble in the airport, come there, show his ambassadorial credentials, and then walk us through. He can also just walk right back through the security control area and rescue us. That's what you need. In China, it's a local corporation. They have the local contacts. They actually can establish that. I can go there and I can actually see patients because to get medical licensure in China is a nightmare, but I can get a business license through the support of the institutions that we work with. So those are the kinds of things that you need to establish. So same thing with Iraq. The reason we're in Iraq is because our faculty member had developed some contacts through her community that she was able to actually develop local contacts. The basic truth is if you go there with all wood meaning but you don't have local contacts because the tourists. In order to be able to do something, you need to have local contacts. So work on, on, on creating those bridges. Great places to do that, international meetings. So if you go to international meetings, you'll offer these positions who you can partner with. I have, um, you know, unfortunately not enough time because I've got contacts that want me to go to Bangladesh, India, Nepal, and it's just, it goes, the list is just immense of all of the different places that have approached and said, we'd love to work and partner to see what we can do. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time to do everything, but those local partners exist, so don't be too shy to try to find them. And I'll open it up for any questions at this point. Okay, thank you. Um, just like logistics, with your residence, how does it work? Like, do you have to take the admission time presentations? Do you have them selected time? Do they do like some of them in the past 30 years? So the way that we work it is, because we have faculty there, it's not vacation time. And also for our faculty, that's the other thing. Because the faculty are supervising residents, it's not vacation time. Because it's an academic thing. Uh, Nationals are usually one week at a time. Pretty much all of them are about that, maybe 10 days. <coughs> the residents are actually, we actually cover them in their rotation, so it's like you went on vacation early. So the other residents are going to cover each other. So like if you're on a rotation, we try to make sure that you're not scheduled for any vacation or vacation when you do this. It's more of an outpatient rotation. So we balance the schedule because we anticipate and we know well in advance who's going on missions and, and when the missions are. And then the chiefs make sure that they're on a lighter rotation that we can actually cover it with the other residents. And the residents are very good about covering them because you'll cover me, I'll cover you, you know, that kind of thing. So it all pays back. For the faculty, it's a similar thing. We've had, we just book it in that we know that we block their schedules if they're going to be doing it. But they are teaching residents because they take the residents with them. And the medical school, or not medical school, the, the ACGME offices, that's perfect because as long as you are with, it becomes a teacher thing. Other logistics, malpractice coverage. Um, Montefiore has a very broad mal malpractice coverage that we verified that as long as it's an officially sanctioned thing that we are doing with the resident and the faculty 
together, and all by the way, medical students together, then they are covered by our welfare. So, Montefiore uh, was very smart. They got very broad coverage, so they could anticipate this. It also means, like, when we go cover the sport events and so forth, as long as it's an officially sanctioned thing, it's good. So we have, a, you know, we have a letter of understanding with the governments we go to, or with Zion Care, or you know, so it's official. The other part of this, and this is one that we actually got away with for about two or three years, is health insurance. The big thing you have to think about is if you get sick in one of these countries, the healthcare ain't that great. That's why we're there. Do you want to be treated there? Ooh, I need to show you pictures of Pigs and Public Hospital, which is an amazing place. It, you know, I think they, it's amazing what they do there with what they've got. I don't want to be a patient there. Um, to fly you out can cost a couple hundred thousand dollars. So, we did the first of these, naively, not realizing that that could be a potential possibility. For the last several years, we've made sure it's about $100 per resident per mission, just in call for participant. You know, we, we also ensure our OTs, PTs, hospitals, uh, everybody else. But we make sure that everybody has an insurance coverage. Because that medevacs you out in case you have a problem. And that is, uh, Fortunately, not been utilized, but it's something that's really important to consider. And then the other thing is for minor bumps, scrapes, and bruises, bring a team medical kit. Because if somebody gets a cut or a scrape, there may not be access to getting, you know, antibiotics or to get into some basic pain relief or to have some simple sutures that, you know, we could suture each other. So we fortunately also not had to do more than like some headaches and some scrapes and stuff like that, or maybe a little bit too much sunburn because we're out in the sun. But having that medical equipment there is actually very helpful. And what we do at the end, we donate the kit. We don't bring it back. We donate the kit to the local the local teams down there. They're very happy to have it too because they have the same needs. So bring some own medical uh, treatment kits when you get there. Have you changed any of your practices up here based on what you've done there? So looking like your prosthetic work, it seems like that works simply. We have, and I didn't put pictures up here. We actually, in the Bronx, surprise, surprise, have a um, relatively underserved community, and we have about 10%, maybe up to 15% of our people who are uninsured because mm -hmm. they're undocumented. And that's a challenge because getting prosthetics or getting any of those things for them is a challenge. We are using this technology to provide for free um, prosthetics some orthotics for our, our own local population. But the other thing that we're doing is we're test fitting. We have a lot of pediatric patients that you're not really sure if they're going to adopt a myoelectric device. You're not really sure if they're going to if they're going to tolerate having uh, the bracing or something. Instead of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on the definitive device, even for insured patients, what we'll do is we will print out a temporary, basically, a, you know, a, a proof prosthetic or proof orthotic, see if the kid tolerates it. If they do, then we can go ahead and make the definitive. And our prosthetists love it. The other thing too is we're doing this with our prosthetic colleagues. We have prosthetists who go with us on these trips. We're not doing this in competition. Our goal is not to replace the prosthetic, uh, the prosthetics and the orthotics that are made professionally. Our thing is here to augment. And our prosthetists love this because this is an opportunity for them to play with some new, new technologies and come up with some ideas and kind of try to make hybrid stuff. So this is actually a, a way for us to tie in. So yes, we are actually translating that into some of the practice that we're doing at home. And uh, our pediatric 
physiatrists are probably our best 3D printing because you know they come up. We have another we have another kid right now that today or tomorrow we're delivering. Uh, it's a child with an, probably an amniotic band syndrome, totally normal child, but I'm not sure whether it's his pointer finger or his thumb. He just basically has a shortened forearm with a very functional single finger. But the problem is it's straight up, so it's a bit of a challenge prosthetically, and he is stronger in extension than he is in flexion. So we're now created, we've just created a tenodesis um, type device that gives him three fingers, because we're not going to be, cosmetically we'll go for five fingers to make sure that we're working okay with the three fingers. So we're creating this device with our prosthetics uh, colleagues, because this is a way for us to prove this, because this is a really weird situation. So there's something where we're proofing it, we're trying it. He's going to get fitted today or tomorrow, I can't remember which, but anyway, he's getting fitted this week. And if it works, he'll go home with the, with the test device, but then we know what we've got, and then we'll make something that's going to be more definitive. One of the things I also like about these devices is if you have a five or six, $10,000 prosthetic, and you're a kid, and you want to play with box, because mom or dad can let you do that. If you've got a 50 or $60 body-driven prosthetic, go play. And if you break a finger, they'll just break your new one. So that's one of the things I like about this, too. The kids can actually just bang these things around if you don't really care. So you get a cosmetic looking. I mean, you, when you get this, you kind of look like the Terminator. You know, you've got that mechanical. <laughs> or actually, like Snoop Skywalker. Anyway, you've got that mechanical hand. We also have had um, a couple of kids who actually have used these and have actually been more popular in school because they got the robo hand. So it turns out that it isn't necessarily a negative, you know, because they were always the kid with the gimpy hand, and now they come in and they got this robo hand. And there is, there is, we haven't printed one, there is a template to make an iron hand. There is a little bit of the LED in the hand. So you can go crazy with these things if you really want to. So it, it's an opportunity to do all sorts of fun things. But the kids do get to choose the color of their prosthetic. We had one girl who chose a hot pink. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.